Thank you for joining us for the Local Church Podcast. At Local Church, we value each person's unique experience with faith and hope this message impacts you today. How's it going, church? Do you remember a few months ago, the conversation that we had about me meeting with my friend Jason and he asked the question, how do you make one disciple? I've been thinking about it ever since. And and it occurred to me today that this eight-week series If you look at 52 Sundays a year minus the summer public holidays that we have off uh, as as an in-person service but still have online, that's almost 20% of our church's focus this year is on this one series. He asked the question, how do you make one disciple? Which led us and the staff to ask the question, what is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I've been following Jesus for 25 years. It took all of the facets of my experience and imagination to try and answer that question succinctly. We're on week four of this eight-week series. And if you're taking notes, the title of today's message is this, The Church, My Team. We've talked about the fact that we're following a rabbi who is God, who is a man, but he's the rabbi of Nazareth. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi by following him, doing what he does, imitating him in this life. We talked last week about spiritual disciplines, about the fact that we want to be people who have disciplines that are not a means to an end, but the goal of the disciplines is relationship with Jesus. But we need to learn how to pray. The Bible is here for us as a handbook for life, to learn, to grow, to understand what it is to follow God. We want to be people that have spiritual habits, religious disciplines, if you will. That's what it is to be a Christian, to follow Jesus and have relationship with Him. But I guess another question that I get asked from people, people would talk to us as a staff, and as a leadership team about, is a question like this. Am I alone in this? Can I do Christianity by myself? Really, I believe that Christianity is the greatest team sport that has ever been invented. It's impossible to do it by yourself. But together, we are better. And so today, let's talk about the church, my team. And we're going to start reading in the book of Acts chapter 2, which is written by Luke, who is the same author as the Gospel of Luke. Isn't that really cool to think that Luke wrote in the Gospels, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the sent one from the Father. But that same author not just wrote the birth of Jesus in the flesh incarnate, but he also wrote the birth of the church. That as we read in the book of Acts chapter 2, we're reading about the early church and about its impact on the world and those people that were around it at that time. And let's start reading in verse 42. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, teaching and fellowship, instruction in the word and community, and to the breaking of bread, amen, and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In 2 Chronicles, in chapter 7, verse 16, in the message version, says this, Believe me, I've chosen and sanctified this temple that you have built. My name is stamped on it forever. My eyes are on it and my heart is in it. Father, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you that as we come around and teach it and read from it and learn from it, 
that it's your desire and your will that it would impact us deeply. And we pray you do that today. Let us fall in love with your church today, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. There's a few moments in life that you'll always remember where you were when it happened. That, you know, those moments in history that if you were alive during those, those watershed moments in history, you'll always remember where you were at the time. The flying V from the mighty ducks, for me, is one of those moments. I'll never forget where I was when I saw this revolutionary moment in sports cinema history. The flying V from the mighty ducks. One, two, and three. One of the great trilogies that I don't think gets talked about enough. It was art imitating life at its finest. Emilio Estevez, the team, the Mighty Ducks, the Knuckle Puck, Goldberg. Remember those movies? So brilliant. So Canadian. So much hockey. The Flying V, though, is a natural phenomenon. It's not a phenomenon that the Mighty Ducks on that movie, that hockey team designed to score goals. It's actually a representation of where ducks form a shape for the greatest possible flight efficiency. That as ducks, that as Canada geese, fly south or come back north, depending on the temperature, they honk encouragement and rotate regularly for the greatest possible efficiency as they fly. That if you uh, are a duck or a goose flying in the air and you come in and you draft behind the duck that's in front of you, you will work less hard for the same output. They honk encouragement, they talk to one another, and they rotate on a regular basis. I'll never forget as a cyclist some years back when I got, I got deep into road cycling. I'll never forget the first time that I drafted behind a cyclist in front of me and was able to experience the efficiency that it provided as I was cycling. People had told me about it. They said, oh, if you come behind, you know, you can have up to 30% more efficient. You could be 30% less energy and 10% more of this. And I was like, you know, whatever. And so I remember this guy who was in our church. His name is Tony Clark. Tony Clark, six foot six, broad shoulders. And he, um, he was in front of me. And to draft, to get right behind, so your tires are I don't know, anywhere between two inches and maybe six to 12 inches off the back, your front tire off the back of their tire, your wheel and their wheel, very close, and you draft. When you get behind someone that's big and wide like him, it creates a suction, and there's a sense that it pulls you forward. You try less hard for the same output. It's amazing. I started drafting behind Tony, and I, was, I remember looking around at my friends, thinking, this is real. This drafting business makes sense. In fact, it makes so much sense that it's illegal in races, that in the Tour de France or professional triath triathlons or Ironman races, to draft on the athlete in front of you is illegal. You will be disqualified from that race. It's illegal because it is scientifically proven to improve performance. In other words, to perform with others is scientifically proven to be better than simply performing alone. Doing life together makes it easier, makes life more enjoyable. Our efficient, efficiency goes up, our joy goes up, our sense of achievement goes up. The other day we had a meeting with our staff and I wanted to do a brainstorm about how to have effective meetings with people. How do you have a, how do you have a meeting if someone has a concern that's an effective meeting that answers their concerns, 
that you're able to move things forward and provide discipleship for that person, provide answers. How do you do that? So I thought, hey, let's get the whiteboard out and let's write on the whiteboard all the things that we've experienced as a church and in our experience in other churches and ministry where hurt or offense or different issues have come up. Let's talk about those issues. And then together, let's brainstorm and role play having a meeting like that right now. What would you say? What if this was, the, this was the concern? And how would you respond to that? And it was a great meeting. We talked for an hour or so. And all of the issues that people had, this is the interesting part. All of the issues that people had and all of the issues that we wrote from historical meetings we've had in the past had to do with other people. In other words, the take home was this. People's issues were primarily about relationships with other people. Very seldom in the church do I have an issue or do I have a meeting with someone who has an issue about the finances. That comes up a reasonable amount of time. Very seldom do I have a conversation with someone who has an issue um, about um, you know, the internet and the logistics of this world. It's not often I'm having a conversation with someone who has an issue about cryptocurrency. But the issues that we deal with as leaders, pastors, in the church is primarily about people's relationships with other people. In short, we don't like being alone, but we simultaneously don't like being with other people all at the same time. Senodophoma was a really successful series because it struck a chord with people. It struck a chord with people that we're trying to balance this dynamic of knowing we need each other, but at the same time being inherently frustrated with everybody else. Recently, I gathered a group of men to help me raise Ryder. We invited him onto his journey of manhood at the age of 13, believing that the next five years will be a really successful time in his life as he grows and becomes a man. He's not a man just yet, but he will be one day. I'm a great dad. In fact, it's one of my greatest strengths in life is to be a good father to my kids. But regardless of how good I am, I can't do it alone. I am a better father when I involve other people in that process. They say it takes a village to raise a child. And anyone who's a parent believes that wholeheartedly because no matter how good we are or how good we think we are, we can't do it alone. The ancient proverb says, go, to go fast, go alone. To go far, go together. We can't do this journey alone. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. When it comes to following Jesus, one of the most difficult pieces of homework I could give you this week would be this. Go and do it by yourself. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't work. Following an invisible God, reading an ancient text and trying to interpret it in the 21st century. <laughs> it's an ancient religion. And despite the fact there are a lot of people that follow and practice this faith and religion that we're a part of, it doesn't make it any easier. Now try and do that same thing in partnership with other people. You're right, it might be messier. But in the long run, I do believe it'll be safer. I do believe it'll be easier. And I think it'll be more successful. And like the ducks and the flying V, a lot more efficient. I think you'll get further faster. With the benefit of others around us, talking with us, being involved in conversations, the literature that people have written, small groups, large gatherings, camps, conferences, debate, <clears throat> excuse me, the Apostles' Creeds, Nicene Creed, all these gatherings that have provided input and literature for us to move forward in our faith, it provides a mirror 
in our lives that we can look at the lives of others and see, oh yeah, this is great. That's not so good. Oh yeah, they've made that mistake before. And as the church comes together, we are stronger as a result. <clears throat> when it comes to questions about God, they usually range in the conversations I've had with people from questions like this. Why, why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, why would a loving God send people to hell? Science and the Bible, you know, apparently don't agree. And, you know, how do we reconcile the two? Uh, God and sexuality, these things come up often. But when it comes to the church, the issues seem a little deeper, more nuanced, maybe a bit more complicated. People ask questions like this. Trusted people in positions of power have hurt others. I've been hurt. I've been a part of groups where people have been misled. Others have been disappointed. And that's just church leadership. Like it is a messy gathering of people when we all come together and try and figure it out. The average church congregant, that's you, that's me, is human. Hurt, offense, and disappointment abound. The church itself is an organization that is so old. It has been around for over 2,000 years. It is diverse and varied. It is criticized and overlooked. We project upon it and we reject it as a result. We, it is cast aside and forgotten. But as we look at the rabbi of Nazareth, which is the purpose of this whole series, as we try and cover ourselves in his dust, his teaching, his hermeneutic, his worldview, his methodology, his yoke, his life and his teaching, as we try and immerse ourselves in what it is to follow him, one thing is clear. In his life and in his preaching, the church is crucial to our faith. He preached it, he lived it, he exemplified it, he attended it, he learned it. The gatherings of the saints right through the Bible is a significant theme. From Genesis, in fact, in Genesis 28, you know, is a part of a minority view, but I do believe that that moment there was the, the birth of the church. That, that um, he woke up and, and said, how, how, how amazing is this place? How amazing is this place? That, that God was here and I wasn't aware of it. I will call it Bethel, house of God. In other words, this will be the place and I will have a family that gathers people together and we will be called the house of God. Genesis, Exodus, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the Psalms, the Gospels and the book of Acts, which is the birth of the early church, the tabernacle, the temple, the synagogue, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant. They were all so central to the life of the Jew. And then Jesus arrived. Jesus went to the temple. He was found there as young as the age of 12 years old, doing his job, his duty, his diligence, learning the scriptures. He went on to study the scriptures. He taught a new way of life. He valued the church. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That let's talk about the church because Jesus talked about it. Let's talk about the church because we believe with his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, that he birthed the church, that when he left, the Holy Spirit came like tongues of fire and people's lives were impacted and the church was started. Let's talk about the church. One of the questions we ask on the discipleship journey with Jesus is this, am I alone? Who are the people that I get to do this with? Who is my team? And the answer is a resounding yes. You get to do it with other people. The church is 
your team. Hebrews 10, 25 says this, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us not give up in meeting together, the Bible says, encouraging one another. We're going to talk about this, if not in this message, but in the messages that are to come, about the fact that the Bible spend so much time talking about the fact that we must encourage one another, build up one another, edify one another, serve one another, be in unity, which is one of our greatest testimonies to the world, and love one another. And we spend a lot of time trying to call one another out, providing accountability, when I think we need to look at the other side of that coin and call out the golden people and provide a lot more encouragement than we do accountability. I think accountability is really important. I think that we should speak and call out boldness from people and encourage them to live their best life and be their best self. But let's not live a cynical life trying to judge and keep people accountable when really what people need in the church is encouragement to move forward and do great things for God. Acts 2 verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So we've got don't abandon meeting in Hebrews. Encourage one another in Hebrews. Acts 2 says, they devoted themselves to the teaching and to fellowship. They came together on a regular basis. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Another translation says, Faithful are the wounds of a brother. That, that word, their brother or that trusted friend is the most intimate relationship that if we are going to call out or be accountable in our church environment, you best make sure that your relationship is like that of a trusted friend or a brother. John 17, 21 says that all of them may be one, the Bible says. Father, just as you and I are one, as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one, just like that. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. John 1 verse 12 says, Yet for all who did not receive him, to those who believed in his name, who did receive him, he gave the right to call children of God. 1 Peter 2 5, You also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Don't give up meeting together. Encourage one another. Gather for fellowship. The wounds of a friend are faithful. Uh, may you be one and be unified as we are one, Jesus prayed. Chosen people, a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood. He gave them the right to become what? Children of God. There's a clear messaging in the scriptures that we are a people, a nation, a priesthood, a family that God is bringing together. A spiritual house built with living stones. We're in this great church filled with these amazing stones and this beautiful marble and stone and this floor. Just incredible. Just an amazing building. The Bible says that we're like this, but living stones built together as his family, as his church. The church, my team, my family, my people, my tribe. Spurgeon said this, the church is not perfect, but woe to him who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved his church, so let us do the same. The church is not perfect, he said, but woe to him who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. Christ loved the church and let us do the same. We were in the office the other day talking about this exact message 
And someone said, man, it's like the team isn't perfect, but we're winning. And I said, you know what? It's exactly the same on the other side of the coin too, because we, it feels sometimes like we aren't winning, but we are perfect. But that because of Jesus, we are a perfect winning team. We've never lost a game. But because of us, we feel like we're losing and we're imperfect all the time. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Amen. So that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. The New Living Translation says, instead you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. In our church, there's a couple of families who've adopted people. Chris, and, uh, Chris Spencer, his parents adopted his sister. Her name was Cora. There's another family in our church. Traveled all the way to Uganda through years and years and years to adopt their daughter. Her name is Joy. When I think about Cora and I think about Joy, this so embodies the Spirit of God, doesn't it? It so embodies the Spirit that we received, the Bible says, that when He adopted us as His own children, that Cora and Joy are not in a small minority group of children that have been adopted. We are all in that exact same group because we have been adopted into His family. That for you and I, we were designed and created, birthed into this world. But then when we became born again, we were readopted into his family. That he chose you and I twice to be part of this world, to be part of his family. Outside of the spiritual benefits, outside of the Holy Spirit, outside of God's manifest power, outside of the giftings and the power of the Holy Ghost, outside of these things, I think that the church's greatest strength is our community. That the church's greatest strength is the church. That the church's most overlooked strength is the community and the gathering of believers. Acts chapter 2 is a powerful moment for the church. Like It's, it, it, it's an explosive um, portion of Scripture that is so significant that birthed who we are. It is a powerful passage. He's building His church, and we partner with Him and the church should be a preview of heaven, that it's what he's building on the earth, that the church is the only thing that will last forever. That the church, like this building, is not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a place I go to. It's not an event I attend. Isn't that, hasn't that never been more true for us in our time than in the last two years? That there are people who are part of our church who have never walked into a physical in-person service on a Sunday. There are people who consistently watch online, download YouTube videos off our YouTube channel. There are people who consistently listen to our podcasts who have never set foot in a physical location in our church, but consider themselves a huge part and key contributors to our church. The reason why is because the church is not a place you go. It's not an institution or a building that you walk into. The church, if you're taking notes, write this down. Is a spiritual family of believers that I belong to. Rick Warren takes it one step further. He says this, a church is a group of baptized believers who've joined together in a commitment to help each other fulfill God's five purposes for their life. I love the church. I defend the church. I live for the church. I believe that the church is God's plan on the earth. Ephesians 3.10 says, through Christians like yourselves, gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and is being talked about even among the angels. Through Christians like you, you and me. Let's look at the church. 
Let's spend a minute today talking about what the church is. What does it mean to us? What does it stand for? What is the church? And if you're taking notes, I've got a few thoughts for us today. The first thing I'd ask you to write this down is this. The church is a home for the lost. It's a home for the lost. They brought three charges against Jesus. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. That he was a man who loved sinners, that he healed on the Sabbath, and that he blasphemed by declaring himself the Son of God. Luke 7, 43 says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That the church family is where the lost belong. That the church family is the only organization in all the world that exists for those who are not a part of it. Matthew 9, verse 13 says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. That he has not come for us. That he's come for those who are lost, who are not in relationship with him, who are far from God. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands that it is God's plan that his house is a place for every person, every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, that the church is a home for the lost. If you're taking notes, the church is the saving of the sinner. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, amen. Not through serving on a Sunday, not through volunteering of your time, not through giving of donations, but you've been saved through faith by grace. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, amen, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Walking into church doesn't make you a Christian. Walking into church doesn't save you. Just like walking into Tim Hortons, won't turn you into an apple fritter. Although that'd be amazing. How good are those? Walking into church, being, like dialing into church today, sitting in the pews, watching online, doesn't make you a Christian. But here's the thing about the church that I love in regards to the saving of the sinner. Encountering the grace of Jesus, repentance of sin, accepting him, the saving of the person, has to do with the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. But my point here is simple. Most salvations which have been followed up with a commitment to serve Jesus and live for him in the disciplined fashion happen in the church. That most Christians aren't skilled or bold enough, and we hope to change this in this series, to share their faith, guide someone through a prayer, and bring them on a journey of discipleship without the church. That the saving of the Christian, the saving of the sinner, is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But the church's role in that process is crucial. There's so many people I know don't know how to present the gospel to their friends, but they do know that if they bring them to church, they'll hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And I pray in our church that they do every single week. The church is also a place where most decisions are made. Most Christians are not skilled, trained, as I've said, or confident bold enough to present the gospel message. And we hope to change that in this series. But the church's role in the saving of the sinner is crucial. 
to have a seeker-friendly church environment where people can walk in, engage in relationships, and commitment to this journey of following Christ is paramount. Number three, if you're taking notes, the church is these two things, but the church is also a hospital for the broken. Things break. We break. At my house, I've got four kids. Things break all the time. And Hugo loves making Legos. So he makes these amazing trucks and vehicles and rockets and boats and planes and helicopters. And um, Lego breaks. You drop it, it breaks. Lego is amazing. The Lego pieces themselves are very durable. But the coming together of all the pieces can be very fragile. A couple of years ago, he would drop something. He would be so upset because he spent hours making it. Whereas these days, he drops these. He says, oh, well, and he picks it up and does his best to put it back together because he just understands that things break. Friends, we break. When things break, we fix them with glue or we ask for a replacement on Amazon or you know, we get a carpenter, some kind of contractor to come over and fix what's been broken. For our bodies, we go to the hospital and the army, it's the infirmary. But what about when our spirits are bruised? Friends, what about when our souls are crushed? What about when we experience pain and trauma and the need to be a safe place where encouragement is supreme and healing is prioritized. This, my friends, is where the church is a beacon of hope and has been for generations of humanity. In recent times, the church has been known for what it's against. I believe that we need to be a church that's known for what it's for. And we need to understand that people break, we break, and that we should be a place where people come and can find the healing balm, the healing oil of the Holy Spirit, and a community that's supportive and will uplift them in that process. That it's a hospital for the broken. As a church, we must create space for the broken, for their healing journey through prayer, the community, friendships, sound teaching, safe leadership, mental health and awareness, therapy where necessary, routine and rhythms, a safe place where people can come and receive the healing they so richly deserve. Number four, if you're taking notes, is this. The church provides purpose for the vagabond. A vagabond is an aimless wanderer. A vagabond is someone who just walks through life without purpose. We all know one. We've all been one. That person who just doesn't know where they're going and barely knows where they've come from. Aimlessly walking through life. The church, though, comes in in this moment and provides an immense sense of purpose in the life of this person. Purpose for the vagabond. Tyler, last week, said this, and I quoted him. He said, I love the church because it reminds me that I'm a part of something bigger than myself. There's something uh, in corporate worship that you can't find anywhere else. I get teaching, growth, and encouragement. I get to humble myself and serve others, he says. He goes on to say this, it centers and sets up my week usually leads to hangs afterwards where I get to build relationships. I can see God working in the lives of other people. I can use my gifts and I can use my skills. The church is a place where personally I feel most alive. Friends, it sounds to me like that is an excellent definition of the purpose that the church provides in the life of the vagabond, the aimless wanderer, becomes someone filled with vigor and passion because of the church. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. The church is also the army for the saints. I just finished a book by two great authors, Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle, both brilliant authors, teachers in their own right. And they wrote a book and it was called Erasing Hell. 
And it was a book that was written really in response to a book by an author whose name is Rob Bell called Love Wins. And I'll get into the content of the book another day. Um, it might take more than one sermon. But as I, as I read the book, um, at least I'll say this today. The book reinforced a long-standing, traditional and widely held orthodox belief that there is hell, and in hell there is eternal punishment for those who don't repent and follow Jesus. So it was a hefty, hefty book, like full of bad news. Because that's really not good news, that hell exists. This is not good, to think that we know people that unless they repent and follow Jesus, unless we do a good job of presenting the gospel to them, that that's where they'll go. This is not, this is not good at here. In fact, this is alarming. This, this, my friends, is the worst thing you'll hear today. That's it, right there. That there are things happening. In fact, I'm in downtown Ottawa at Knox Presbyterian on Elgin Street. We are less than a kilometer away from what has been now approaching a 14-day protest uh, for the uh, vaccine mandates for freedom uh, as the protesters uh, would define it in Canada. Like it's gnarly what's happening right now in our country, in our world, and specifically here in Ottawa, in our city. But despite the fact that there are all kinds of things happening that are bad and people are protesting and all these kind of things, and I make light of none of those things, hell has got to be the worst thing that any of us have to deal with cognitively or the concept of the fact that one day those that we love will end up there. Anyone who's excited to hear this news about hell needs help. But as I read the book, one thing that became clear to me is that we are an army that's engaged in a very important and highly urgent matter, that our movement is significant if we do believe in eternity, big H and little h. That if we do believe this, in our orthodox, traditional, and widely held Christian faith, then we need to be people who are activated like an army. Because we have the good news of Jesus, but the good news of Jesus is only particularly really good because of the bad news of the alternative. And on top of that, we have, friends, unfortunately, the enemy of our soul. It all concludes with the conviction that our message is crucial to the individual. It's paramount to humanity. The church, to coin a Canadian phrase, is super important. I think of the movie 1918. Have you seen that? A movie that was filmed, uh, whether it was or is perceived to have been filmed, in one continuous shot. I mean, you know, like, I love a good army film, Saving Private Ryan, one of my favorites, Fury, that's another banger. 1918, brilliant, but the cinematography, the way it was filmed, powerful. You know, two-hour movie, one continuous shot, and maybe they would, they, would, they would cut as they maybe go past a pillar or something, but the whole thing, just perfect, you know? And, and it's a movie where you've got two young men who are having to get a message, um, because the communication lines are down, to get a message back to, like, the main headquarters of the Allied forces to give them a message that will bring about the success of the Allied forces in World War I. And if they don't get the message, the Allied forces will fail. It sounds to me like that's kind of the church's purpose. Like we are an army gathered in a movement. We have an enemy. And if we don't get the message across the line, 
if we're not clear in gathering together and being unified, not on every issue, not on every opinion. Like I couldn't, someone messaged me the other day. I put up a, it was the basketball um, trade deadline in the NBA ended this week. And so there's all these crazy trades on Thursday before 3 p.m. And I posted it and someone messaged me, who's in our church? Close friend of mine. He's like, honestly, who cares? And, I was, and then he laughed. He's like, ah, nah, whatever. I care that you care. And I was like, yeah, you're not wrong. No one cares. The amount of times I'll talk about movie illustrations, I just gave you one, sport illustrations, just trivial things. No one cares. Who cares? These things are not important. What is important is that we get the message of Christ in our hearts, that we're not gathered together because we have the same opinion on stuff or think the same thing on political issues or have the same sports teams. Someone the other day came to the church office wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Even Chris Spence is not bold enough to do that because he knows, hey, I'm in Ottawa. I'm working for staff for a church in the city of Ottawa. Dallin's the biggest Sens fan. She might stab me in the back or poison my cup of tea at lunchtime. So I'm just going to wear my Maple Leafs jersey at the cottage on the weekends or in the evening when I'm just chilling at home and I'm going to celebrate. We know he's a Leafs fan. And this guy walked in with a Leafs jersey. And Dallin goes, ah. <laughs> like, it's, it's all good. It's all good. But who cares? What's most important is that we come together and we value what's crucial. And what's crucial is the good news of Jesus. What's crucial is the church. What's crucial is understanding that you and me, we don't have to do this by ourselves. That the church is a home for the lost, amen. That it's the saving of the sinner. That it's a hospital for the broken. That the church is purpose for the vagabond. But at the end of the day, the church is an army for the saints. Friend, if you're here today and you're saying, yeah, that's all cool to be a part of the church, but how do I kind of engage in that community? Come back next week. Join a small group. Contribute with your life and your time into something that has eternal significance. And I believe that that's the church. But the first and most important thing that you and I need to do is make sure that we are friends with the captain of the church, the king, the, the head, the centerpiece of the church, and that's Jesus. I was thinking, you know, growing up, you always want to um, you know, make the best sports team, the best rugby team, the best basketball team, whatever it might be. And when it comes to Jesus, you don't have to be good to make the team. That's what I love about the church. You don't have to be skilled to make the squad. You just have to know the captain. Like, imagine if you like, knew the captain of the Canadian hockey team, and you'd be like, hey, man, like, I know we're boys, we go way back. Like, I know the Olympics is coming up. You mind if I get a run? You know? My wife's going, give me an assist to score a goal, you know? What do you think? Can I keep the puck? You know, like, and he's like, yeah, we're boys. Let me talk to the manager, the coaches, the boys, it should be fine. Come through. That's the church. Like, hey, Jesus, like, I'm not really good, but like, inherently, I'm actually quite bad. I've got bad habits. Um, I cuss and sort of swear all the time. Heavy drink, I smoke a lot. Uh, Heavy into drugs, and really, my life's a wreck. Do you mind if I join the church? And he's like, yeah, of course, man. Come on through. Walk with me. Follow me. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. Be covered in my dust. Enjoy this community. None of us are perfect, but we're all trying to walk in the same direction. So today, if that's you, you're saying, man, I just want to just have a chat with Jesus. That's called prayer. And the best way to invite him into your life is to acknowledge our wrongdoing and say, I need you. I want to follow you, but I need your inherent work in my life, the power of the Holy Spirit. I need to repent and move away from my ways to start to follow your ways. And so if that's you today, you want to pray that prayer, I'd love to lead you in that prayer. 
to get you on the right track, on the right team, on the right page with God. You might be far from Him, but this moment can bring you close. And through discipline and walking with Jesus, spiritual habits, coming back next week, these things will keep you close. And so if that's you, let me pray with you. I'll say one line and you repeat it with me. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you do. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. Love you so much, church. I'll see you next week. I'm going to hand you back now to our service MC. We are so glad you joined us for the Local Church Podcast. To get connected, please follow us on social media and check out our website for groups and other ways to get involved.